Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 563. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Today, we are playing the part two of Switch by Steve Pantazis. So, if you haven't listened to the first one, obviously, go back last week and grab that yes this was a big big story and we broke it up into two sections so we have got the final part of that as well there we go how about our exciting just want to say a big thank you patreon yes we're slowly just dragging ourselves up that cliff face there big thank you to kevin case kevin kevin sir and attention thank you so much and John Nemec. John, what can I say? Honestly, huge thank you. Do you know what I mean? Just, it helps with, honestly, man, it's like each month you get your, your pay, but then it crashes down. So come back after that. Anyone who's, you know, check your, your Patreon feed as well because see, they must still be having issues with, you know, over there at Patreon because it just crashes, man, and just like, oh, everything just gets tight as out, man. So... And I had a message from Robin. Hello, Robin. <laughs> Robin messages and says, <laughs> who's been a Patreon for, I guess, since it started. And Tony, Tony, I can't take any more Lego ads. <laughs> this, honestly, everyone who's on Patreon, there is, if you come to the front of the website now, when you're logged into Patreon, you can get the little RSS feed and put it into your podcatcher. Do you know what I mean? Do that. Just take that RSS feed, copy and paste it, and put it in your podcatcher. You get this show a day early with no ads. Do you know what I mean? So, what's not to like? And I'm I'm thinking there's quite a few Patreon players out there, people out there, who don't. Get get it in, man. Get it sorted. You get it a day earlier, and it runs as smooth as butter. There you go. And that is, if anyone wants to, £2 gets you, $2, sorry, gets you ad-free Starship Sofa. But enough of that. Let's get into this main fiction. And like I say, it is part two of Switch by Steve Pantazis. Originally published in Writers of the Future, Steve is an award-winning author of fantasy and science fiction. He won the prestigious Writers of the Future Award in 2015 and has gone on to publish a number of short stories in leading science fiction and fantasy anthologies and magazines, including Nature and Galaxy's Edge. 
When not writing, a rare occasion, Steve creates extraordinary cuisines, cuisines, exercises with vigour, with vigour, I bet, (laughs) and shares marvellous adventures with the love of his life. Originally from the Big Apple, he now calls Southern California his home. And again, this story is, it would be strange if it was narrated by someone else. This story is narrated by Brian Rollins. Brian Rollins was born in California and grew up in and around the western US. He currently resides in the Highlands Ranch of CO, where he works as a voice artist, primarily focused on audiobooks. He is probably best known for being the voice of Glenn and Tyler series of audiobooks written by J.B. Sanders. You can hire Brian to read your next audiobook at thevoicesinmyhead.com. And Brian, again, you know, before you even start, just brilliant, brilliant. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Switch Part 2 by Steve Pantazis. I park on Sutfin Boulevard, about a block from the Jamaica Long Island Railroad Station. A little after 11, and the streets are still teeming with pedestrians. It's a shithole of a neighborhood, as mixed as a melting pot gets, mostly low to middle income, depending on which side of the block you're on. My beat-up SUV is fine where it is. I push through the mangle of people walking toward the subway and stores at the end of the street. I hear the L train in the background as I turn down an alley. I'd ended up going home after Mullins left, only to head out after reading Carolyn a bedtime story and telling my wife that duty called. In a way, it's not too far from the truth. I ring the bell to apartment 15 on the steps outside a rundown tenement. I'm wearing a nondescript tee, jeans, and sneakers, with a Mets baseball cap, brim pushed down over my forehead to keep a low profile. I'm mindful of the pair of gang members sitting on the stoop two buildings over. I can tell they're tracking me as they talk to each other. They're both wearing wife beaters and shorts that extend down to their ankles. I recognize the stereographic tattoos projecting in front of their chests, burning sigils of circles with X's for the eyes. These guys are La Hermanda de Fuego, Brotherhood of Fire, a Dominican gang that controls this part of Jamaica. And, judging from their dot rankings above their circles, I'd say low-level enforcement. The lanky one doesn't even bother covering up the handgun with a taped grip peeking out from his waistband. He turns my way, and I sense a pingback through my retinal overlay. It's a discovery ping, a way of saying, Who are you? I ignore him. Don't even move an inch to let them know I'm aware of what he's trying to do. If I were on the job, I'd do my own active pingback and pull up his rap sheet through our NYPD portal using the electronic signature from his own temporal lobe implant. The buzzer sounds just in time. The lanky one stands and whistles at me. He just wants to see my face. I quickly push through the door, pretending like I didn't hear him, and make sure it locks before heading up the stairs. The building reeks of trash, and the hallway walls are filled with graffiti. How could anyone stand living in a place like this? I knock once on the metal door of apartment 15. Reggie opens the door, but leaves the chain on. His one visible eye is looking at me, red-glazed, pupil dilated. He's getting sculled, I'm sure. It's a cheap high, requiring a MindNet app you download to root the firmware of your TLI. 
The TLI fires a pulse every few seconds, flooding the brain with alpha waves. Stupid, in my opinion, because you can get stuck in an endless loop and, eventually, a coma. Reggie wipes the dribble dangling from his lips. Hey, you gonna let me in? He waves a catatonic hand. Pockets. It's the same ritual every time. I turn my jean pockets inside out and lift my shirt to show him I'm not packing. He's too stupid to ask me to lift the cuff of my pants. I've got a twenty-two handgun concealed in an ankle holster. Not much use against the guys downstairs, though. Okay. He unlatches the chain and lets me in. I hate the routine. Going inside, smelling that rotten Chinese food stink that never goes away, seeing the disarray of clothes, wrappers, and dirty dishes everywhere. I've asked him a number of times to exchange product for cash at the door, but he wants me to wait on the dirty couch as he tries to remember where he stashed his supply of switch. This time, I'm glad he let me in. I've got to talk to him. Have a seat. He points at the couch as he teeters toward the kitchen. I don't bother sitting. Reggie is an odd-looking creature. Real narrow head with a leather-brown Colombian expression. Early thirties although his compulsive drug use has him looking much older. He was a certified informant for us a couple of years back, paid to report on local gang activity. He helped me make a buy, and that's where I got a sample of the good stuff. He's no longer on payroll, but he's still my go-to guy. After a few minutes, he staggers back. Yo, I can't find it. It's not what I want to hear. You can't remember where you put it? Maybe it's in the bedroom, like last time, or the closet. His drowsy face twists into a frown. You telling me how to run my shit? Aye, he yanks his hand haphazardly. Yo, man, I know what I'm doing. Don't tell me how to run my shit, okay? I let him go through the motions. Part of my brain says I've made a mistake coming here. The other part, knowing this guy's track record. He's always come through for me. I've used other sources in the past, but Reggie's stuff is hands down the best, even if he's out of his mind. His expression clouds over, then he starts giggling like a child, snot bubbling from his nose. Wait! He snorts his way out of a laughing fit. He catches his breath and then settles into a massive grin. The bathroom! Yeah, it's there! He weaves out of sight, returning a minute later, waving a plastic dispenser with a Listerine logo, carrying a few more in his other hand. He tosses me the one with the logo. Hope you like grape. I exchange money for product, taking possession of the five dispensers, a hundred strips total. I've asked for more in the past, but Reggie claims it's all he has. I click open each dispenser, examining the contents, making sure I'm getting a full supply per unit. The cardamom scent is subtle. What? You don't trust me? I ignore him and shove the collection into my jean pocket. I pull out an equal sum of money as I gave him a minute ago, along with a folded printout from my back pocket. He looks at me and just blinks. What's this? I need to find someone. Here, take the money. He palms it, still blinking in confusion. I show him the blow-up image of the knuckle with a Y-shaped scar. I'm looking for a guy who deals, Hispanic, with a scar like this on his hand. He holds up the printout and squints. He looks at me, then the printout, and darts his eyes back and forth several times. He stops and tosses it on the floor, along with the money. 
bills spill over the dirty carpet. Damn. Reggie points harshly at me. You crazy man? What's this all about? What do you want? I don't work for you anymore. He rocks back and forth, anger blossoming into mental discord. I hold up my hands neutrally. Slow down, Reggie. I just want to know who he is. That's all. His rocking gets more pronounced. What do you want with the candy man? The name rings a bell. A big-time street dealer with an even bigger ego, if memory serves me correctly. I want to meet him. Reggie grunts, that's crazy talk, because he don't want to meet you. He gets his shoulders into the back and forth swing. Spittle flies from his lips. I'm worried he's going to flip out on me and do something stupid. You know him, Reggie? You know the candy man? He shakes his head maniacally. I keep my hands raised, a peace offering. It's okay, Reggie. Calm down, buddy. The manic jerking continues. No! He keeps his eyes fixed on the sprawled printout between full shoulder swings. I should leave, cut my losses, but he acts like he knows the guy. I pump him for information. You see this money? It's yours. Just tell me who the candy man is. He snorts, getting his chin into the swing. Candy man's crazy. Yes, sir, he crazy. You sure he has a scar on his knuckle? Did you see it yourself? Spit dribbles down his chin, and his eyes are wide as if in a trance. It reminds me of what a voodoo shaman from Haiti might look like. Reggie? He stops abruptly, gaze leveled my way, drool leaking from the corner of his crooked mouth. His voice turns gravelly. You're too slow for the candy man, white boy. He opens his mouth in a lunatic grin, revealing a missing front tooth. Crazy slow. He's not making sense, but I need to see where this leads. Why am I too slow, Reggie? Why? His gaze wanders off, lost in the mess of his apartment. He drops his voice to a whisper. Why? Yeah, Reggie, why? He almost sounds lucid as he speaks the next couple of sentences. Because he's got the mojo. That's why. The best mojo, not like yours. How do I get a hold of this mojo? He flicks his eyes at me, insanity restored. You gotta go down the rabbit hole, white boy. You gotta go deep. You gotta go deep. And when you get there, the candy man will be waiting. Yes, sirree. And when he catches you, he's gonna snap you in half. Cause that's what he does when you're too slow. He cackles, gapping his teeth wide and ugly. He's speaking pure, worthless trash. I bend down to retrieve the printout. He can keep the money, but there's no way I'm going to leave the photo. Reggie shouts at the top of his lungs, scaring me stiff. Don't touch that! I unclench my body. Just grabbing my paper, Reggie. The money is yours. That was the deal. But this I'm taking. He shakes his head like a rabid dog. I don't care. You're leaving. Get out! Look, Reggie, I'll just take the paper and... He grabs what I imagine is a paper bag stuffed with garbage from the ratty credenza behind him. But when I see the gun, I know better than to make a move. I swallow, watching his hand tremble with the revolver pointed at my chest. It's a three fifty-seven, enough to put me six below. I don't have my vest, so there's no point in questioning whether it's loaded. Okay, Reggie, I say in a surrendering tone. I'm going to leave, all right? Yeah, you need to go. He jabs the air with his gun. 
He's got his index finger tugging on the trigger. You have to put some effort into pulling it, but I'm not taking any chances. My thoughts filter over to Susie and Caitlin and imagine them for a split second crying in the hospital room as I lay on a bed with a respirator. Reggie keeps pace with a jagged twitch to his carriage. He then tosses his head back and talks into the air. In Spanish, Si, el blanco hombre sigue aquí. He laughs, his twisted laugh, and it chills me to the core. My panic button goes off. Who's he talking to? You could do anything through the mine net without the other person knowing. Reggie definitely contacted someone, either through the thought link or M-text. The fact he spoke it aloud just confirms it. I'm out the door in a flash. It rattles closed, muffling Reggie's hyena laugh. Down below, I hear heavy footsteps reverberating off the treads of the stairwell and voices. I peek over the railing and see the Dominican's guns drawn. One spots me and points. They break into a run. Shit. I sprint up two flights of stairs to the top landing and slam open the door to the rooftop. The gravel on the flat roof crunches as I scamper for cover. I duck behind the industrial cooler as the door shuts and take out my twenty-two pistol. The one thing in my favor is that it's dark, with the only strong light source behind me. By the door, I exited. Ahead, the roof's ledge rises a couple of feet, blocking some of the city lights, aiding in my concealment. I hurriedly scan my surroundings. I'm sandwiched between two apartment buildings. The rooftop of the closer one is about a half flight lower. I might be able to outrun these guys and get to the door on the other side. It'll either be open or I'm screwed. Calling for backup is out of the question. I get ready to launch, quickly estimating my jump and landing. The door swings open before I can take one step. I hear the familiar whistle of the lanky Dominican. E blanco! O blanco! He calls out in a sing-song voice. He claps, then makes kissing noises. From the sound of their footfall, I can tell they're splitting up. They know I'm hiding, and I know they're hunting. I can fire a warning shot to buy more time, perhaps create a standoff. Except, when they realize I'm using a small caliber weapon, it will be for naught. And I will have wasted a precious bullet. A blanco come out! The lanky one says, we just want to talk. The other one laughs, giving away his position. They're closing in from either side, covering all angles of escape. My heart is racing. How the hell did I end up up here? Again, my thoughts turn to my family. No hospital room this time. Just an image of my bullet-riddled corpse being scraped off the concrete sidewalk below. I won't even get an honorable burial. This isn't getting killed in the line of duty, not even close. I'm swelling with anger. I had no business coming here. There was a reason my supply of switch was almost out. There was a reason why I witnessed what it did to a teenager with no priors. And there was a reason why my gut told me to leave Reggie alone and head home. All the signs, yet I didn't pay attention to any of them. I yank the bundle of dispensers from my pocket. I'm tempted to hurl them toward the edge of the roof, or better, try to barter my way out of this predicament. The product has street value, although I doubt my stalkers would be interested. As I squeeze the collection of plastic dispensers in frustration, one pops open. Reggie's cackling fills my thoughts, and his accusation, You're too slow for the candy man, white boy. Too slow. 
crazy slow. My fingers go to work, hinging on a ridiculous idea. I wedge the twenty-two into my belt and rip the plastic sheath open. I drop the rest of the dispensers on the ground. I grab the whole stack of strips from the open container and bite down. I chomp furiously. The Dominicans are maybe eight or ten paces away. In a few seconds, they'll have a clean shot. Saliva mixes with film, and my mouth is washed in grape and cardamom. I slosh around the shreds, feeling bits churn into a paste. I chew frantically, trying to get the mixture to dissolve in time. Within a couple of seconds, my cheeks warm. Two more, and my face flushes. Then, something inexplicable happens. Time slows. As if each frame of the film reel in my vision is moving at a tenth of its normal speed. Yet my mind accelerates in a hundred different directions. My eyes dart around, picking up the minutest details. Bird droppings along the ledge, peanut shells in the gravel, the hoarse breathing of my pursuers, the step of each foot, the position of their bodies, and the intention of each movement. My twenty-two is no longer useful, I realize. I rest it on the ground and crouch, legs muscles bunched to spring. There's a clarity in my thoughts, so bright I could count the strands of hair on my head and still have time to measure my next move. My other senses kick in, and I pick up the scent of unwashed skin, the change in air pressure, the tang of foreign sweat. I scoop up two large pieces of gravel and transfer one to my throwing hand. The lanky one clears my line of sight first, just as I hurl the rock. It strikes him in the left eye, and he staggers sideways. The second guy appears on the other side, momentarily distracted by his partner, enough for me to hit him squarely below the Adam's apple. He drops his thirty-eight and clutches his throat, wheezing as he steps back. Everything is happening in slow motion. I'm after the lanky Dominican, predator, urge, unfettered. He fires a blind shot, ricocheting off the ground where my foot was a moment earlier, his good eye blinking reflexively and tearing. A second shot rings out as I dodge to the right. I shift all my weight, calculate the distance to close on him, and spring, taking to the air. My fist catches his jaw with an audible crack, dislocating it. He shrieks as I land opposite him, grabbing his wrist and resting his pistol in one fluid motion. He loses his balance, sprawling to the gravel, crying out in pain, neutralized. His partner is gasping, trying to recover his breath while aiming at me. I'm moving again, a blur, faster than before. I run to the side of the cooler, concealed for a little over a second, and skid, throwing up a shower of rocks. He pulls the trigger prematurely, hitting nothing. By the time I appear on the other side, I'm on him. My brain computes a combination of fatal blows, strike to the temple, elbow to the summit of the nose, hook to the base of the cerebellum. The information is just coming at me, as if my brain has been transformed into a supercomputer. I opt for a non-fatal blow and shatter his clavicle instead, pile-driving my fist with agonizing force. It knocks him back into a screaming tumble. I hold still, both assailants in my peripheral vision. My heart is pumping harder than it's ever pumped. I'm supercharged, and I know I can kill these men a dozen ways to Sunday if I want to. And I do. But I need to resist the craving. I'm a vampire, fighting my nature to drain their lives. Thoughts even go to Reggie and what I might do to him. I clench my fists, try to remain rigid, and block out the temptation. 
I'm not going to become a Kurt Rodriguez. I'm not going to indulge, even though I want to snap these creatures into pieces. I straddle the chest of the second man, startling him. The doorway light catches the dread in his eyes. He's breathing fast, groaning from the agony of the pressure I'm placing with my knee squashed against his broken clavicle. He's mine. I squeeze either side of his mouth with my fingers like a vice. I'm going to ask you once, and if you lie, I'm going to rip your fucking jaw off. Comprende? He nods, scared out of his ever-loving mind. My voice is a hiss, a venomous hiss. Where do I find the Candyman? There is no coming down from a twenty-strip high, at least not in the first couple of hours. Before this moment, I had no idea what it was like to do more than two hits in a 24-hour period. Now I'm worried the high will never end. I've got the worst case of the jitters, and I'm holding my arms to keep from shaking, braced against an I-beam beneath the elevated transit line that ferries the 7 train to and from Manhattan. Mullins picks up on the other end of my call. Hey! He's barely awake. A second later, and... God! It's one in the morning. What's up? There are a thousand things I want to say. Blistering thoughts competing at light speed in my overclocked brain. Rodriguez wasn't a victim. Yeah, I know. He enjoyed every minute of his high. He wanted to kill those cops. You see, it's a dark side, Ed. It's a dark side that wants to control you. And if you don't have the strength, well, you're a goner. There's a pause on the other end. Mullins' voice comes back dead serious. Hey, is everything okay? This doesn't sound like you. Mullins has it wrong again. It sounds exactly like me. The true me. The unleashed me. You're a good guy, Ed. I know you've had it rough, but I'm telling you, it's going to work out in the end. Man, you're scaring me. You been drinking or something? Ed, I want you to listen for a second, okay? He keeps quiet on the other end. If anything happens to me, I want you to take care of Susie and Caitlin. It's a partner's oath. You remember that, right? Of course. He sounds like he wants to say more, but he's afraid. I can tell. There's nothing to worry about, Ed. I've got something to take care of, and I'm going to follow the rabbit hole. I'm going to dig deep, real deep, and finish this. Finish what? What we started. I'm going to close out the Rodriguez case. I'm going to make it right for Yee's parents, for the family of the other two officers that were shot, for my brother Tommy, and for Mr. and Mrs. Rodriguez. For you, buddy, and for the rest of the boys. I'm going to rip out the source and make it right. Jesus, Terry, what the hell is going on? Are you in trouble? Hey, man, I'm here. I'm here. You understand? So talk to me. He never calls me by my first name. It gives me a modicum of comfort. I gotta go, partner. See ya. Wait, Terry, hey! I disconnect and block him from calling back. The L train grinds above me and I let go of my arms. The jitters rack my body and I vibrate to the rolling of steel wheels over the tracks. I'm a ball of bottled up venom, every sedimentary moment poisoning my blood a little more. I need to release it. I need to release all of it. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. It's a 15-minute drive to my destination. With each passing streetlight, the pressure builds. I want to uncork the pressure to let it burst. 
but I have to hang on a little longer. I park in the heart of Astoria, Queens, a 24-hour non-stop mini Manhattan of low-rise apartment buildings and single-store businesses. Spanish, Greek, Arabian, and Brazilian clubs and cafes are hopping, showing off the neighborhood's multicultural personality. The one I'm interested in is a club called El Toro Loco. My rooftop informant said the Candyman fronts as a legit businessman, using the nightclub scene to traffic product. He claimed he didn't know which club, but I followed the rabbit hole to its very depths. It's amazing what you can learn through the mind net when your neurons are ablaze. Reggie was right about the crazy part. El Toro Loco translates to the mad bull, or literally, the crazy bull. I don't know if it was his rabid ranting or if he was trying to tell me the answer. Latin music echoes out onto Broadway. Young 20-somethings are clustered in line, waiting to get into the club, while 3D glyphs advertise drink specials that change in price as demand shifts during the night. The bouncer at the door is big, like an NFL offensive tackle, close-shaved afro indicative of prior military service. He's 300 pounds easy, with very little body fat. My brain has already calculated six ways to take him down using nothing more than my God-given hands. I'm not dressed for the club, and he makes it a point to tell me to remove my hat and to get to the back of the line. I do neither. The young crowd makes no attempt to hide their disgust for my older presence. I don't care about them. I want in. There are 19 people in line at El Toro Loco. A video camera above the door confirms we're being watched. The old me would have flashed a police glyph, and the bouncer would have moved aside. There's no room for the old me. I step toward the bouncer. Sir, I'm going to ask you again. Please move to the back. Faster than he can react, I sock him in the windpipe. He claws at his throat, bug-eyed. I follow it up with a knuckled fist to the kidney. His body flexes involuntarily, and he hits the ground. All 300-plus pounds of solid manpower down for the count. I step over his mountainous carcass, leaving an astonished crowd behind. The club is packed. Lasers, stereographs, and booming bass thrills my senses. I see two men with the word security across the front of their black t-shirts, quickly pushing through the throng toward me. I've been made. I shove sideways across the dance floor toward the restrooms and the staircase leading up to the catwalk and second bar. People are hanging out everywhere, laughing, talking, drinking, and dancing. I don't want to alarm them. I just want to get my prize. I'm rough, pushing people aside, swimming upstream, trying to beat my pursuers. I hit the stairs a couple of paces ahead of them. I punch up the stairs, zigzagging precisely between bodies. I'm four strides ahead by the time I catch the top step. It's less crowded up here, and I bolt toward the back area, past the VIP roped-off access and velour-cushioned lounge chairs, along the black walls, toward the solitary door in the very rear. The door opens six paces before I get there. The suited, short Asian man that exits fires a stun gun at me. A pair of electrodes shoot out. Time slows again. I see the dart-like projectiles and the conductive wires propel through the air. I bend sideways, eluding their trajectory. It forces me off balance, but my brain won't let me fall. It tells me to throw my weight into my right foot and push off into a leap. 
Airborne, I rained down, driving my forearm into the bridge of my assailant's nose, breaking it and knocking him to the ground with my momentum. I waste no time getting my bearings. I grab the butt of his stun gun and wheel about, clipping the first bodyguard across the forehead with the carbon fiber grip. He knocks mouth first into the wall and pitches heavily to the side. The second guard tries to put me in a bear hug. I smack him upside the chin with the butt of the stun gun, snapping his head back. He's down a moment later, lights out. I take an adrenalized pause to absorb my audience, frozen with their drinks in their hands. Their expressions vary from shock to sheer terror. They're seeing the venom released, the poison of what I've become. It triggers momentary remorse. A second later, I'm ready to engage my prize, any notion of guilt extinguished and forgotten. I told Mullins I was going to finish this, and I am. I toss the stun gun to the floor and enter the lion's den. He's sitting comfortably behind the solitary wood desk in the small office, stained glass peacock lamp illuminating his face in a wash of yellow light. He's not some prize fighter or Olympian or martial artist or bodybuilder. He's ordinary, my age, Hispanic mixed with Caucasian, with a medium build hidden beneath a tailored suit. Behind the calm eyes is a storm, I recognize, a tidal wave waiting to crash ashore. I wasn't expecting an amped welcome, but I'm not frightened by it either. I lock the door behind me. There are no windows, no secondary exit, just the four walls of our cage. He could have chosen any place to wait for my arrival, but he chose here instead. One way in, one survivor. He loosens his red silk necktie. I'm drawn to the crimson hue as it shimmers against the bright, recessed lights above, but more so by the Y-shaped scar on his tanned knuckle. Air conditioning is piping in, blowing down on us. I can't feel the cool, though. So, you're the Candyman. And you're Detective Sergeant Terrence Parker. He has an American accent. I don't care that he knows who I am. Facial recognition technology and network video cameras can easily pick up a name. They use it in casinos. Why not a nightclub? I'm not here to arrest you. His eyes are set on me, hungry, seething. I know. Good. I just wanted to get that out of the way. He pulls his tie off, folds it in thirds, and sets it parallel to the edge of his table, same as what I would have done in his place. His jacket comes off next as he remains seated. I'm surprised as he tosses it over his shoulder, letting it land sloppily atop the wastebasket in the corner. I notice the clothing hooks embedded in the center block wall behind him. Yes, he says, catching my glaze. You would have hung it there. He unbuttons his left cuff and rolls up his sleeve. My mind is parsing his comment, analyzing its meaning. Why he tossed the coat, why he told me that I was expecting it, why he seems so relaxed while I'm nearly quaking from anticipation. I launch an active pingback. It comes up empty in my retinal overlay. I check the signal strength of my MindNet connection. It's at 97%, almost perfect. Why can't I get a read on him? You won't find me that way he says, starting on another sleeve. His movement is steady, but I can tell his blood is boiling. My name is Jean Levu. All you had to do was look up the owner of the club, and you would have found me. Easy. I'm surprised that I missed that. 
Is the switch finally wearing off? I had left the other dispensers behind on the rooftop of Reggie's building. I've got no backup. It's just me and the chemical substance in my bloodstream. Someone bangs on the door. It's all right, Laval says loudly. The banging ceases. Sorry about that. You look Honduran, I say. I wouldn't have guessed French. My mother was Nicaraguan, my father French. But you didn't come all this way to figure me out, did you? No, I came to kill you. I'm surprised to hear myself say it. It sounds like a line from an old James Bond film. Maybe I'm not crashing after all. I can feel the surge of excitement, the tingle in my face, the need to put this man to his end. I quickly remind myself that I'm a police officer. I'm not going to kill this man. Am I? Laval takes off his watch and places it next to the tie. Everything he removes lightens the load, allows him to be more nimble in a fight. I should be considering my own outerwear, but I'm already stripped down to a t-shirt and jeans. I remove my baseball cap. Feel free to toss it, he says. He points at his jacket. I want to throw the cap, but I need to place it neatly, somewhere. I center it on the cushion of the chair facing him. He smiles politely. Hateful beast, masked by a level of control I can't comprehend. How does he do it? Laval offers me a seat. You can always put your hat over here. Again, he points at his jacket. I'll stand. I'm evaluating his physicality, considering all the ways I can take him down. He will have his own brand of tricks, enhanced by heightened senses. Dig deep, I tell myself. Reggie's advice. How long have you been using? He asks, removing his gold wedding band, which I had failed to notice. I expect him to toss it on the jacket, but he surprises me again and sticks it in the drawer. I would have put it next to the tie. Two years, and you? Five. I had no idea Switch had been around for a half a decade. Hardly anyone knew what it was when I stumbled upon it. Even the wiki didn't date its origin back that far. Laval responds as if reading my mind. Yes, it's been that long. The first generation product was terrible. Liquid drops. It caused violent mood swings. We replaced it with the clear tablets. But the stomach acid destroyed a lot of the positive effects. So we went to coated tablets, and even those didn't do the job quite right. He unbuttons the top of his blue dress shirt. Curly chest hair spills out. Your generation has been around three years. It's very good, but it also has its limitations, as you well know. My generation? He makes it sound like there's something else. I've encountered plenty of variations in the form, quality, and efficacy of the product. Is Laval alluding to that? My condolences, by the way, he says. I heard about the shooting at the gas station. His comment makes me mad. If we're going to fight, what is the point of being polite? I examine the desktop for anything I could turn into a weapon. A pen to the eye, a letter opener between the vertebrae, a paperweight to the philtrum. That area between the upper lip and the bottom of the nose... There are plenty of choices with these ordinary objects. Again, I'm thinking of killing, not wounding him. I amend my thoughts and consider a blow with a stapler to jostle the cerebral cortex. That might do the trick. My generation, however, has none of the effects of yours, he continues. We're experimenting with the dosage. If all goes well, we should start FDA trials next spring and get our approval fast-tracked. We've got some good people working on it, a much better business venture than the street has to offer. My mind tells me not to believe him, that he's trying to placate me into thinking he's working for the greater good. I'm not going to fall for his guile. Yet, I'm stuck on the we reference. Who's we? 
He lifts the stapler. Of course, I'm not all about the legal dosage for recreational use. If you're going to save the best champagne for the best occasion, why waste your time on the cheap stuff, right? You go for the gusto. He switches the stapler to his left hand, his dominant hand. The good news about your generation of product is that it will be off the market once ours hits the pharmacies. No more psychotic episodes, no more cop killing, no more psychological addiction. You get a prescription for that attention deficit disorder you've been complaining about, and you're good to go. He's feeding me a line, but I'm keen on his game. I think his silver ballpoint pen is the best weapon to use. I come up with 11 methods to paralyze him with it without even thinking about it. You know, that's a pretty good story, I say. I'm sure someone will buy it, but not me. So, how about we cut the bullshit? I step toward him. Why did you deal to Kurt Rodriguez? Was he an experiment to you? Laval rolls back in his chair, leaving the stapler on the desk at a strange angle. The compulsiveness in me wants to nudge it just a little so it's even with his tie. Again, he appears in control of his emotions, not a blink at the mention of Rodriguez's name. That boy had potential. I was just curious to see how far he would take it. I had no idea he'd go all the way. So he was an experiment, and you, what, coached him? Laval is smug in his response. He had that spark. I simply opened his eyes. Laval makes it sound as if he was a benefactor, as if he were helping Rodriguez. Rodriguez wasn't some kind of loner or misfit or abandoned child. He was well-liked by his friends and loved by his family. All he wanted was a way to distinguish himself from the ordinary. It's funny how you find what you want if you really seek it. Laval happened to own the candy store, evangelizing the merits of his product. One strip, and studying becomes easier. A second, and you can run faster. Up the dose again, and maybe you'll make history. Keep going, and you'll become God. Laval is nothing more than a preacher, spreading his infected gospel while hiding behind a club to pursue his true proclivity. You could have stopped him. Laval stands and pushes in his chair, bringing it flush with the edge of his desk. I could have done a lot of things. How about you? Who did you stop? He wants to make me out to be a hypocrite, and maybe I am. My selfishness hasn't made me a better husband or father. It hasn't made me a better partner to Mullins, and it hasn't helped kids like Rodriguez stop themselves before it was too late. Right now, my nerves are frayed to the point where I'm not sure of what I am. But I know this. Our encounter is going to end with one man standing. Laval walks calmly around the front of the desk and perches himself on it. It's a disadvantageous position. He'd have to go on the defense to fend off my attack. Why would he do that? He pulls a clear plastic sheet from his pant pocket. He lifts it up, exposing a two-by-five set of gel-like buttons also clear. He pops one square off of the perforated sheet. There's a single button in the middle of the square. He pockets the rest of the sheet. One of these is better than 30 of your strips, except you don't pop it in your mouth. You apply it to the skin, like this. He places the square flat against his wrist and pushes the button. It pops inward, squeezing out a gel that reminds me of hand sanitizer. He tosses the empty square on the table and rubs the gel into his wrist. See, it absorbs almost instantaneously. The rest evaporates with no residue. It's pharmaceutical grade quality. The good news is it hits twice the neuroreceptors as the old product. That means you're firing on all cylinders. 
I'm painfully aware that I just let him dose up in front of me. I think my senses are dulling. Are the strips finally wearing off? He answers my next question before I even ask it. It's my second application today. He folds his hands, scarred knuckle on top. Normally I do one, but, you know, special company and all. He's blocking the pen by sitting on the desk. And all the other implements I was considering using. He's outmaneuvered me before I realized it. Even though I don't feel afraid, I'm starting to get this sick feeling in the pit of my stomach. Well, there you have it, he says with a smile. I can't resist asking. So, what happens now? Laval slides off the desk. He shrugs, still smiling. Now, I kill you. He comes at me before I have a chance to duck out of the way. His knee connects with my stomach, propelling me backward. I stumble three steps before riding myself, the wind knocked out of me. Instant nausea rises up my throat. I suppress my gag reflex. It costs me an elbow to the face. I barely deflect it, taking the brunt of the blow with my shoulder, the rest with my cheek. I collide with the wood casing adjacent the door. It's a hard knock to my scapula, pain surging up my back. Laval throws a kick. Somehow, I manage to sidestep it. His foot demolishes the sheetrock to my right instead of my sternum. When he removes his shoe from the hole he created, I'm already to his left, near the desk. Pieces of drywall chip off and cascade to the floor. He stamps the dust from his foot. The whole bottom part of his pants leg is coated with sheetrock debris. It seems to infuriate him, but only for a moment. You're good, he says, shifting the weight to his left heel. Nice to see you actually remember your combat training as a police officer. There are equations firing in my brain. Some are telling me that my odds are greatly improved using one of the desktop implements available to me. The others are telling me that I have a one in five chance of surviving, period, based on the amount and quality of product in my system. I need something better to even the fight. It's right here. He pats his left pocket, again reading my mind. One gel would do it, but I'd never last long enough to get one. I lunge for the pen, snap it up, and roll across his desk, knocking over his expensive lamp. It crashes to the floor. The glass and bulb shatter, but I'm on my feet, desk between me and my phone, my only safety net. He steps around to his right as I circle back. I expect him to grab the stapler, but he's going to use his bare hands. He hops oddly on each foot toward me, like some kind of wound-up toy with springs for legs. I wait for his bounce to reach one body length and then swing the metal pen to stab him in the carotid artery. I mid-swing when he alters his step, ducking below my thrust. I can't block his punch to my groin. Pain explodes from my testicles. I double over and lose the pen, along with my balance. He follows up with a kick to my solar plexus, sending me skidding to his coat-covered wastebasket. I land on my back, cushioned only by his sports jacket. I try to use my leg as leverage to stand. I manage to get one foot on the floor. I cry out as the pen I've dropped is driven through the top of my sneaker. Ouch, he says. That must hurt. I've never experienced agony this intense. I'm unable to get up. The waves of crushing pain are radiating upward from my foot. I'm seeing stars. Anyway... He peels me off his jacket and onto the floor. My face strikes broken glass. It cuts into my skin. The pin is sticking out of my sneaker, punched through the tendons of my foot, gnawing at my nerve endings. 
Laval ties the arms of his jacket together around my throat, lifting me up. I instinctively pull at the hangman's noose, trying to breathe. He slams me onto my side in the middle of his shattered lamp, knocking my skull against the brass base. My head throbs, but the air rushes back into my lungs. I'm left gasping, a dab of blood rolling down my cheek. He reaches across for something on his desk. I should take advantage of the split second. His midriff is exposed above me, but I can't do anything. My autonomic system is misfiring. He pulls back, standing over me with an object in his left hand. It takes me a second to focus, and when I do, I'm seeing that silly stapler. I actually laugh. It's funny, although I don't know why. Maybe it's the idea of Mullins reading my cause of death in a report, crying and cracking up at the same time. Laval laughs too. I know. Who would have thought? A stapler? He hefts it. It's made of resin, fabricated by a 3D printer. I'm guessing part of it will disintegrate when I drive it through your skull. What do you think? I keep laughing, not because it's funny, but because I need to buy time. There's a moment in any life-and-death situation where you know whether you're going to make it or end up with a headstone. That's when you need that FM, that effin' miracle. It happened to me once when I was a rookie during a shootout with an armed robber in a convenience store. My duty weapon had jammed, and all the junked-up kid needed to do was take me out with his pistol. Instead, the clerk did what she wasn't supposed to do, engage the suspect. The pepper spray to the face bought me my second chance. Now I need that same kind of FM. Too bad no one's around to save my ass. I feel glass beneath my right hand, a couple of pats, and I find a shard about four knuckles long. I grab a hold of it. I fix my sight on Laval's left thigh, right where his pocket is, if I can just get myself into a sitting position. Let me ask you something. It's a last-ditch effort to gain a few more precious seconds. I push myself up to my elbows, knuckles down, shard hidden. I prop myself back against the wooden leg of his desk. If you had the new generation of product available, why didn't you sell it to Rodriguez? Why did you give him the old stuff? He rotates the stapler with one hand, the other ready to wield it if I flinch wrong. I think you already know the answer. I do, and it sickens me. Laval is a sadist, pure and simple. He wants to create an army of flawed superhumans to watch them destroy and combust. The new product isn't any better. It's the same maker of monsters, except the user will think he's in control, when in fact, he will end up changing into the very thing Laval has become. He gives the stapler one last twirl and then holds it up. I know he's faster than me. I know he's stronger than me. I also know that I'm dead sitting here. If I make it out alive, they'll probably take my shield away, and that's okay. I've gone down the rabbit hole, and I don't like what I've turned into. But the most important thing is that I don't want to leave my daughter a legacy of a loser father who threw his life away chasing a drug high just to feel normal. In slow-mo, I watch the grip in Laval's left arm tighten. I can tell he's going to be dramatic and go for the overhead blow by the way he's arching back, emboldened by my injury and compromised position no less. It'll take him half a second longer to execute, but the payoff will be as grandiose as he hoped. His thigh is within arm's reach. I don't need theatrics for what I have to do. I pivot the weight to my right hip. With all my strength, I lash out with my glass dagger. 
I anchor the point three inches in from his hip flexor, sinking deep and dragging down with a ripping motion. He yelps, losing momentum. With my other hand, I reach for his torn pocket. I snatch the bloodied sheet of plastic tabs from the fabric, tearing away three square gels in the process. Reflex drives Laval backward to recover from my stabbing. I smash the torn sheet against the floor, popping the gels with my fist, slathering my skin with clear liquid and blood. His eyes widen, a notion of fear and recognition on his pain-tortured face. I feel my skin electrify as I yank the pen from my foot. I'm hit with a major endorphin rush as it falls from my hand. Every synapse and neuron awakens. I'm slowing time more than I ever could with just the strips. A second goes by and I'm on my feet. I know there's pain in my foot, but I reroute the signal and block it off. I'm thinking faster. Multitasking processes normally hindered linearly, going deeper than I've ever gone before. Instinctively, I've got my hands gripped on the lip of the desk, assessing weight, size, and mobility. I don't think through the shift in power to my lower body. I just do it. Laval swings into action. He knows what I'm about to do. But I'm faster. I redistribute power to my hands and forearms and flip the wood table up. I anticipate his angle of attack and thrust hard. The desk smashes into his torso. I throw all my momentum into the push, crushing his body into the cinder block wall. There's no yield to the masonry's ruthless surface. The desk breaks apart from the force of the collision, two of the legs prying loose, splinters flying. The impact complete, I grip the side of the damaged table and toss it. It lands loudly a few feet away, upside down. Laval crumples to the ground, blood streaked along the wall from where his head made contact. I collapse to my knees next to him, winded. He looks at me, head cocked oddly, neck vertebrae damaged. I can't feel my hands... He manages to say, alarm in his voice. Something's wrong with his mouth, too, because his speech is slurred. Go ahead, he prompts. Finish it. There's nothing more in the whole world that I want. I conceive 18 different ways to sever his spinal column. It's what a Roman gladiator would have considered with a fallen adversary in the arena. I look around the disaster of the office. There's no emperor to give the go-ahead. The decision is mine. No. I pat him on the shoulder, my way of saying, you're not getting out of this easy, pal. The reality reflects in his horror-stricken eyes. I imagine he's scared shitless of going to prison as a cripple after facing an unforgiving jury. I don't care what he thinks. I try to rise to my feet, but something's wrong with my motor functions. It's like the wires have been disconnected from the battery, leaving my limb muscles unable to contract voluntarily. I push back against the wall with what little strength I have. Time begins to return to normal. With a vow incapacitated, my thoughts shift to home. I want to crawl into bed so badly, to hold Susie close and confess everything, and ask for forgiveness, to promise her my selfishness is over, and that I will be the father and husband she deserves. The door bursts inward. Knob and lock smash on the final floor. I glimpse a portable battering ram being retracted. The first police officer aims his submachine gun, shouting, Don't move! He's wearing ballistic armor and goggles. He gives an all-clear, and two more team members entered, followed by a most unexpected sight, Mullins in jogging pants and a striped polo shirt, a couple of sizes too small. Mullins glances at Laval and takes a knee beside me. Hey, partner, what the hell? He looks over at me, 
Jesus H. Christ, what have you gotten yourself into? It's a damned good question. I lean my head against the center block. I know. I don't bother asking him how he found me. I'm sure my subconscious mind wanted this. I thumb in Laval's direction, pointing at his scarred knuckle. Arrest him. Mullins registers a sliver of surprise and nods his head slowly. He motions to the element leader. Read him his Miranda rights and then get someone with a backboard in here. The SWAT member goes about his task. I feel my brain baking under a torrent of neural activity. I'm crashing and I'm crashing hard. My eyes close for a moment. Electrical pulses firing across my retinas. Mullins snaps his fingers. Stay with me, buddy. I got EMS on the way. I reach out, my arm blurring into three. How fast is my pulse racing? Mullins takes my hand. Easy there, stud. I try to keep from fading. I've done a bad thing. My throat is suddenly dry. I'm parched and there's no water to be found. Real bad, Ed. Yeah, I know. It'll be fine. To me, fine amounts to rehabilitation, maybe incarceration. I do appreciate Mullins not being a jerk about it. He adds, You can give me the details over a beer. He shakes his belly for emphasis and grins. We both know it's a joke. I eke out a smile for him. Yeah, that's what you need. I'm fighting to stay awake. I want to sleep. To pass out so badly. I can't help myself. I slip into the shadows, drift toward the dark. It fades to white, and I see my wife sleeping next to me, chest rising and falling as I watch her peaceful form. I get up and go to Caitlin's room. She claps when I offer to read her a bedtime story. She snuggles next to me as I start on her favorite book, giggling at the way I act out the characters in the pictures. She's barely awake by the time I finish. I tell her that I love her with all my heart. She says she loves me too. She wants to know if I'm going to be around to read to her tomorrow night. Of course, sweetie. Daddy's not going anywhere. It's a nice dream. The End And there you go. Oh, Steve, what a story, man. What a story. Just, you're there. You're there. And that's the help of Brian as well. Brian, thank you so much. Oh, honestly, great idea. Did you just like that? You know, let us know in the comments if if that was a thing you'd be into. You know, like a, a double at again, you know. We, we just kind of threw that out there, see if it would work. And it certainly has in our respite. But did you just like it? Anyway, that's it. I hope you've kind of will look after her and keep, you know, support one period on. That would be fantastic. Until next week, just like I say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.